Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Bubble Diorama episode 153, Batman. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Huge hi, welcome to Bubble Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener, welcome back to this podcast. Thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for being here for a movie you probably know because it's Batman 1989. But basically, no matter how you found this podcast, no matter how you're listening to this podcast or where you're listening to this podcast, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'm so happy and grateful to have you here for the history and legacy of Batman. But before we go into all of that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened and gave feedback on the previous episodes that I did. So I started something called Heroes Through the Decades, and it's a mini series that I'm doing. There's going to be seven episodes focusing on different heroes in different decades. And I started the series on Jason and the Argonauts in the 60s. And last episode, we went to the 70s with Superman. And so now we're going to the 80s for Batman. And Batman was a phenomenon. There's no real sugarcoating. Batman was a phenomenon. But it was also a stark contrast to the Batman that many people knew at the time, which was the Adam West Batman in the 60s. And not only was there are a lot of controversies surrounding this movie. This movie also had a Prince soundtrack. Anyone listening who doesn't know who Prince is, please go to wherever you listen to your music, whether that's Spotify or Amazon Music, listen to some Prince. Because Prince was one of the greatest artists of like the 80s and 90s. Prince was huge and amazing. And he did so many bangers. 
And this movie has a Prince soundtrack. And I mentioned in previous episodes that Ray Harryhausen made us all believe in monsters. And Superman made us believe a man could fly. And really, Batman was the ultimate playboy. When I say Batman, I mean Bruce Wayne. Uh, <laughs> just to clear that up, Bruce Wayne was the first billionaire playboy genius philanthropist of cinema before anyone even thought of adapting Iron Man. Bruce Wayne was complicated, dark, mysterious, and tortured. And so was Batman, his alter ego. Is this the Batman v Superman of verbal diorama episodes? Who is going to win in the biggest episode of Heroes Across the Decades? Is it going to be Batman or is it going to be Superman? Let's find out, shall we, as we go into this episode on Batman. Because there are a lot of parallels and similarities between the making of Superman and the making of Batman. Kind of makes sense considering Superman was the first biggest comic book movie and then Batman came along. So it's rather apt that The Dark Knight follows The Man of Steel. In this little saga that I'm doing, Heroes Through the Decades, who's Batman? I can't do a Batman voice, I'm really sorry. My voice doesn't go that low. But who's this trailer? Every punk in this town is scared stiff. They say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. Is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? Vicky Vale. Bruce Wayne. And what do you do for a living? He's a tired old man. Can't run this city without me. Your luck is about to change. Terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. He's out there right now. And I've got to go to work. Cogrisson effectively runs Gotham City, but there's a new crime fighter in town, Batman. Grissom's right-hand man is Jack Napier, a brutal man who's not entirely sane. After a falling out between the two, Grissom has Napier set up with the police, and Napier falls to his apparent death in a vat of chemicals. However, he soon reappears as Joker and starts a reign of terror in Gotham City. Meanwhile, reporter Vicky Vale is in the city to do an article on Batman. She soon starts a relationship with Batman's everyday persona, billionaire Bruce Wayne. As always, we're going to go through the cast. We have first build Jack Nicholson as Jack Napier, a.k.a. Joker. Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman. Kim Basinger as Vicky Vale. 
Robert Wall as Alexander Knox, Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon, Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent, Michael Goff as Alfred Pennyworth, Jack Palance as Carl Grissom, and Jerry Hall as Alicia Hunt. Batman has a screenplay by Sam Hamm and Warren Scarin, a story by Sam Hamm, is directed by Tim Burton, and is based on Batman by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, who remains uncredited for this movie, but I'm going to come to all that shortly. And Batman, along with Superman, is probably one of the most recognisable superheroes of all time. The Dark Knight, the Caped Crusader, the Defender of Gotham, the character of Bruce Wayne and his ongoing efforts to rid Gotham City of crime. The tragedy surrounding the murder of his parents is one of the most well-known and repeated superhero origin stories of all time. What isn't is the origin of Batman as a comic, because Bob Kane is well-known as the creator of Batman, and this movie does indeed pay its respect to Kane. But someone who struggled to get recognition, somewhat similarly to Siegel and Schuster, as I mentioned in the last episode on Superman, is Bill Finger. Bill Finger wasn't actually credited for his work on Batman on screen in movies until 2016. And so, I want to make sure this episode gives both Kane and Finger their dues. In 1938, Superman debuted in Action Comics number 1. And by early 1939, the success of Superman led to National Comics Publications, aka the precursor to DC Comics, wanting more superheroes. Bob Kane drew a character wearing red, with two stiff wings protruding out of his back, he named the character Batman. He showed his drawings to Bill Finger, who suggested the removal of the red, replacing it with black, and giving him a cowl instead of a simple face mask and a cape instead of wings. Batman's predecessors were the Scarlet Pimpernel and Zorro, performing heroic deeds in secret and living an alternate life as a secret identity. Batman was also made a brilliant detective, following other pulp heroes like Dick Tracy, The Shadow and Sherlock Holmes. Obviously, he'd also have to wear gloves because he didn't want to leave any fingerprints behind. It was Bill Finger who gave Batman his famous alter ego, Bruce Wayne, named after Robert the Bruce, King of the Scots from 1306 to 1329, and Anthony Wayne, an American revolutionary officer who claimed victory against innumerable odds, known for his fearlessness in the field of battle and given the nickname Mad Anthony Wayne. Batman was teased with an image in Action Comics number 12, and would debut in Detective Comics number 27 in a featured story called The Case of the Chemical Syndicate in May 1939. Together with Superman, Batman was a cornerstone of comics, and the company experienced a huge wave of success. He received his trademark utility belt in July 1939, and his first vehicle, the Batplane, in September 1939. His tragic origin story was published in November 1939, as the death of his parents was revealed. The backstory was written by Bill Finger. It's this event, witnessed by a young Bruce Wayne, where he decides to avenge their deaths by ridding Gotham City of crime. It was Bill Finger who introduced a young sidekick for Batman as a Watson to Batman's Sherlock. Basically, someone for him to talk to, because let me tell you, doing stuff alone can kind of get a little bit lonely sometimes. Kind of wish I had a Robin. Bob Kane was against the idea of a sidekick, but when Robin debuted, sales of the comics nearly doubled and the kid sidekick was born. Batman received his own solo title on the 25th of April 1940 as Batman number one while also starring in the detective comics line which also introduced his classic villains Joker and Catwoman. She would be referred to as the cat in that particular comic though. 
I mentioned the last episode, Siegel and Schuster, the co-creators of Superman, had some falling out during their time, but ultimately worked together on the character and also worked together to gain a fair level of acknowledgement and compensation for their creation when they signed the rights over to National Comics Publications. This wasn't the case for Kane and Finger. It was Kane who signed away the rights to Batman in exchange for a mandatory byline on all Batman comics. But even this would gradually disappear until Siegel and Schuster would receive a byline created by credit in the 1970s. Bob Kane was recredited with Batman and has been associated with the character in an ongoing fashion ever since. Bill Finger wasn't so lucky. And despite being around since day one and despite unlimited acknowledgement in the 60s, he would receive no official credit by DC. At the time of his death in 1974, he was still uncredited. In 1965, Bob Kane referred to Bill Finger as a quote-unquote ghostwriter and that Finger's claims to have created Robin and co-created Batman, Catwoman and Joker were quote-unquote fraudulent and entirely untrue. After Finger's death, Kane would change his stance, saying in 1989 that Bill Finger never asked for credit for his work and that Kane didn't offer any credit, so it basically remained uncredited. The moral of this story is, if you don't ask, you don't get. In his 1989 autobiography, Batman and Me, Kane described Finger as a contributing force on the series, noting, I must admit that Bill never received the fame and recognition he deserved. In July 2012, author Mark Tyler Nobleman released the book Bill the Boy Wonder, the secret co-creator of Batman, detailing the story behind Bill Finger's involvement in the Cape Crusader's origins, promoting coverage of the true story behind Batman's creation. In 2017, a documentary called Batman and Bill premiered on Hulu, which focused on the efforts of Mark Tyler Nobleman, investigating Bill Finger's history, finding his granddaughter, and finishing with DC reaching an agreement with the Finger family for all future Batman media to state the character is created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. It took till 2015 for DC to finally acquiesce and give Bill Finger the credit he deserved and his first big screen credit was Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice and small screen credit in the second season of the TV show Gotham. This was after, after the deal was worked out with the Finger family. And I think we can all agree that credit where credit's due, without Bill Finger, we would not have Batman as he currently is. It's a bit of a case of better late than never when it comes to Bill Finger's credit, but at least he finally has it now. And hopefully... The Finger family also have the financial compensation that Bill Finger actually deserved. When it came to Batman appearing in film, he would actually appear for the first time in a serial called Batman in 1943, starring Lewis Wilson as Batman and Douglas Croft as Robin, and a sequel called Batman and Robin in 1949, starring Robert Lowry as Batman and Johnny Duncan as Robin. Batman Dracula, an unauthorised fan film, was directed and produced by Andy Warhol. Yes, that Andy Warhol. Only a few scenes of it remain, and the rest of which is long destroyed. And it's unauthorised, it's unofficial, so don't go out looking for Batman Dracula. It does not exist. I just thought it was a nice little thing to mention. Beginning in March 1945, Batman and Robin made regular appearances on the radio drama The Adventures of Superman, including solo stories when series star Bud Collier had time off. Batman was voiced by Matt Crowley, Stacey Harris, and just to add, just like Jan, Beverly and Lynn, Stacy, also not a woman. You'll get that if you've listened to Jason and the Argonauts and Superman. Just like to point out when contributors of things sound like women, but they're not. They're actually men. Also voiced by Gary Merrill as well, with Ronald Liss as Robin. 
With interesting comics waning in the 1950s, Batman would team up with Superman and would each discover their secret identities. New characters like Batwoman and Batgirl would be introduced, and the comics began to reflect the era of science fiction with shifts into that genre. What really bolstered the comics, though, was the debut of the Batman TV series, starring Adam West and Burt Ward. Three seasons of 120 episodes aired from 1966 to 1968, with a film released in between the first and second seasons. Aimed at a teenage audience and incredibly bright, campy and humorous, Batman was a huge hit. It was a pop culture phenomenon and is still a lot of fun to watch. If you've never seen an episode of the 60s Batman, please watch it because it's so much fun. It created a generation of memes, zaps, pals, kasplats and zowies. But it was never the direction for the character that Kane and Finger had ever intended. It would take another 23 years for Batman to return to the big screen. But a version was planned way before then. The film rights to Batman were purchased in 1979 by Benjamin Melnicker and Michael E. Uslan to make Batman dark and broody again. This was notably a year after Superman debuted on the big screen to huge financial and critical success. When Uslan pitched his idea to various studios, they questioned why it wasn't like the Adam West TV show. And the studios would turn down the idea to do another big screen Batman, especially a version most people would be unfamiliar with, unless they were avid comic book readers. Because to the casual viewer in the 60s, Batman was fun and campy and silly. Batman wasn't some dark crime-fighting Avenger. It'd be like today, releasing a bright, silly Batman movie. Today's viewers only know dark, broody Batman. And Joel Schumacher aside, because Joel Schumacher tried, after all, to make a fun, bright, silly Batman movie. And I still swear to this day, the Joel Schumacher Batman movies are brilliant fun and highly underrated. I doubt I'll ever cover them on the podcast, although you never know. You never know what I'm going to do on this podcast. But I am a huge fan of those Joel Schumacher Batman movies because they're so different. And so confident in Batman were producers Mel Nicker and Uslan, joined by John Peters and Peter Guber of Casablanca Film, that Batman was announced publicly in late 1981, despite not having any studio attached with a $15 million budget. Even back in the early 80s, a plan was afoot to make the approach to Batman different to any other movie, a plan which culminated in Batmania, but I'm going to cut back to that later. The first thing to do was to get a studio on board, which was eventually Warner Brothers, who were also behind Superman. The first writer to have a go at the Batman movie script was Tom Mankiewicz. He finished a Batman script in June 1983 called The Batman, not to be confused with THE The Batman of this year. Taking inspiration from the 1939 Bob Kane, Bill Finger version of Batman, the Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams version of the early 1970s, and the Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers version of Batman from the late 70s, his script followed the same pattern as Superman, opening with the murders of Thomas and Martha Wayne, introducing Joker as the main villain, as well as the Wayne's murderer Joe Chill, and Rupert Thorne and Silver St. Cloud, and also including the Penguin and Robin turning up towards the end, which, if it sounds like a stuffed movie, then, yeah, it probably would have been a stuffed movie. Nevertheless, this movie was announced, given a $25 million budget, to be filmed and released as early as 1984. But wait, I hear you cry. Is that the same Tom Mankiewicz that did uncredited rewrites on Superman, as mentioned in the previous episode? Holy Tom Mankiewicz, Batman! And yes, it is the same Tom Mankiewicz. And he was actually a key figure in this Batman movie being made because his script was the one that kept guiding the project forward. 
And there were many iterations of this script. There were many directors in the frame at several points in the 80s, including Ivan Reutemann, Joe Dante and Wes Craven. Tim Burton was not the obvious choice for director because he was only known at the time for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. But as that movie made so much money compared to its small budget, Burton was hired to direct Batman in 1986. And his relationship with Peters and Goober was often tumultuous because Burton knew what he wanted and who he wanted and often went against the producers. It's worth mentioning at this point as well that Burton had also been suggested by Kevin Smith to direct Superman Lives, the infamous Nicolas Cage starring Superman film, which was also produced by John Peters. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of Superman and Batman links in this episode. That's just one of many. The first thing Burton did was effectively throw out Tom Mankiewicz's script deeming it too campy and enlisting his then-girlfriend Julie Hickson to write a treatment inspired by Batman the Killing Joke and The Dark Knight Returns. Burton wasn't a Batman fan, but read the stories and loved the dark, gritty realism. Hickson's treatment was replaced by a studio-mandated treatment by Steve Englehart, writer of limited series Batman Strange Apparitions, which Tom Mankiewicz had also used as inspiration for his script. Englehart's script reintroduced a lot of Mankiewicz's characters and plot points, but Burton decided to go a different route and contacted Sam Hamm. Now, Sam Hamm was a Batman fan who worked at Warner Brothers and basically asked, would he be interested in writing a Batman movie as a film noir style superhero movie to explore the psychology of Batman and the juxtaposition between the character of Batman, the character of Bruce Wayne and the other side of Batman's hypothetical coin, Joker. And of course, Sam Hamm said, yes, please, I would very much like to do that. The first decision they made was not to do an origin story and instead make the mystery of how and why Bruce Wayne becomes Batman part of the storyline. Han demoted Dick Grace to a cameo, replaced Silver St. Cloud with Vicky Vale and Rupert Thorne with Carl Grissom, a new character he created. He would turn in his Batman script just days before a planned writer's strike. It's worth noting as well, Sam Ham would go on to write scripts for Watchmen and the Avengers. No, not the Marvel one, the other one. But ultimately, neither of those projects would get made. Burton went off to work on Beetlejuice. That's episode 94 of this podcast, by the way. Which, again, Beetlejuice was made for little and made a lot. But simmering in the background was this urgent need to cast Batman. And like Superman, they had a huge bat-shaped hole in the production. The studio wanted a huge name for Batman, with the likes of Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, Charlie Sheen, Tom Selleck, Bill Murray, Harrison Ford, Willem Dafoe and Dennis Quaid all considered. Pierce Brosnan was approached but declined the role. At the same time, they were trying to find Joker and the character of Jack Napier, aka Joker, was a lot easier to cast because although Robin Williams would really want the role, Jack Nicholson was cast after being the top choice for the character since those early first talks about making Batman in the early 80s. And like Marlon Brando in Superman, Nicholson was top billed for this movie, taking home a $6 million fee plus a percentage of the film's earnings, including associated merchandise, which, as I'm going to come to, was really, really smart of him. He also demanded time off for LA Lakers games, top billing on all promotional material, and a certain amount of time off daily with set clock-off times and reportedly amended the script of his character as he saw fit. It's reported that his total earnings from Batman were anywhere between 50 to $90 million, and Nicholson's casting was met with a hugely positive fan reaction too. Bob Kane, who was also heavily involved in this movie as creative consultant, had always envisaged Nicholson as Joker. 
what didn't get a positive reaction from fans, in fact, he got 50,000 letters of protest, was the eventual casting of Michael Keaton as Batman. You look at Keaton now and how genuinely great he is as the character, and it really beggars belief that people were unhappy, but they really were. And bear in mind, this was before Twitter outrages. Imagine what it would be like on Twitter if Michael Keaton was cast as Batman today. It's just not even worth thinking about. Obviously, Burton had worked with Keaton on Beetlejuice, and Keaton was known for his roles in comedy movies. It was producer John Peters who suggested Michael Keaton to Tim Burton. And obviously, Michael Keaton is not this huge, buff, imposing figure of a man. He's kind of a normal-looking dude. But apparently, it was his eyes that got him the role because they were so piercing and intense. And when you're in a Batman suit, your eyes are really the main thing that you can emote through. Still, it can't have done Keaton's self-esteem very good to know that 50,000 fans disliked you enough to write letters of complaint before they'd even seen you in the role. But, like with most fan backlashes, it seems silly in retrospect. Keaton was interested in the duality of the character's two personalities and how that affects someone internally. Gone was the comedic Mr. Bomb and Night Shift actor, and Burton was confident in casting Keaton because they already had Nicholson and believed that no matter what people thought of the casting of Keaton, they'd be won over by Nicholson's Joker enough to see the movie, then be wowed by Keaton, and then in turn tell their friends, and then they'd go and see the movie and be wowed by it. To quote from my episode on Dodgeball, that's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. Sean Young was cast as Vicky Vale, but was injured in a horse riding accident shortly before filming was due to commence. Kim Basinger could join the production immediately, and so she replaced Young. Burton and Warner Brothers were happy with Ham's script, and while there was a little bit of internal division over Keaton's casting, Warner's was still holding back on production starting. It would be the release of Beetlejuice that was the catalyst to start production on a Tim Burton-helmed, Michael Keaton-led Batman movie, but that didn't mean that fan controversy stopped. Filming commenced at Pinewood Studios here in the UK between October 1988 and February 1989, in which 18 sound stages were used using a 51-acre backlot for the set of Gotham City, the largest set ever built at the time, taking up much of Pinewood's 95 acres. Burton chose Pinewood mostly because he'd always wanted to work in the UK, but also to avoid the media circus of shooting in the US and the controversy and fan expectations surrounding the movie, most of which was focused in the US. And during filming, the Reuters Guild of America went on strike. As I said, meaning that Sam Hamm couldn't make any alterations to the script. Warren Scarrett would complete necessary rewrites and is therefore the other person credited for the screenplay. Charles McKeown would do uncredited rewrites. It was during those rewrites that changed the origin story of Batman, making Joker the killer of Bruce Wayne's parents and adding an additional layer of complexity to the comparison between Batman and Joker. Both were killers, but killers killing bad guys versus killing innocents. Tim Burton believed he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't in the eyes of fervent Batman fans and also believed there was room for multiple interpretations of Batman in media for the kitsch TV show from the 60s and for a gritty dark noir. Rewrites would continue throughout filming, even reaching a point where actors would act something out, not knowing what was happening next. And one of the things that sets this Batman apart is its production design. Tim Burton had originally wanted Anton first for Beetlejuice after being introduced to him by Derek Meddings, but he was unavailable due to a hectic schedule post-working with Stanley Kubrick on Full Metal Jacket. For Batman, a year later, he ensured First was available, and one of the first things you tend to notice about Tim Burton movies 
specifically early Tim Burton, is their look. Artistically and visually, Burton's style is obvious. And bringing this to life in Batman was Anton first, and their collaboration was an incredibly harmonious and fruitful one. Architectural styles were deliberately mixed to show Gotham as ugly and bleak, a city run by crime lords and gangs, reaching up into the sky rather than a huge flat cityscape. Nothing was to look new. There was no gentrification in Gotham. Using Terry Gilliam's 1985 movie Brazil as inspiration, as well as the tone of the Dark Knight comics, no neon was allowed anywhere to avoid comparisons with Blade Runner. Both Burton and First agreed that filmmaking needed to go back to basics, to go for strong visuals, attitude and feelings over flashy special effects. A 5.5 million construction budget was used to create Gotham, along with securing the lot to withstand gale force winds due to filming in the British winter. There was no talk of sequels at the time. It was just cheaper to build it for the long run. Everything was built 40 foot high, with Gotham's cathedral topping 50 feet. The budget only afforded one high street and one alleyway and Gotham Square, and although Derek Medding's miniatures were used for flying sequences, it avoided the use of miniatures for scenes where they weren't needed. The Batmobile was the biggest headache, according to Anton First, because it needed to be designed, built, and, in, and be in full working order in five months. The Batmobile, Batwing, and assorted Bat gadgets, all designed by First, were later constructed by prop builder John Evans. Keith Short sculpted the final body of the 1989 Batmobile, adding two Browning machine guns. For the Batmobile, they looked at jet aircraft components, war machines, the salt flat racers of the 30s, and the Stingray macho machines of the 50s. The car was built upon a Chevrolet Impala when previous development with a Jaguar and Ford Mustang failed. General Motors wanted to spend $6 million on developing the Batmobile for the production, but that would be relinquishing creative control on the design to General Motors, and so John Peters turned them down. Nick Dudman, the makeup supervisor on Willow, that's episode 16 of this podcast way back when, first met Burton and First before Batman was greenlit, and Burton confided in him that he was afraid of just two things about this Batman movie. The first was Batman's cape, and the other was the look for Joker. After experimenting with a dental plate like Cesar Romero did in the TV show, Goodman realised he couldn't talk and would end up sculpting six Joker designs, submitting them to Burton and giving Nicholson final approval on Burton's two favourites. The prosthetics consisted of six appliances, a nose tip, two upper lips, a chin and two lower lips with cheeks. The Joker makeup had to be carefully timed because of the clauses in Nicholson's schedule, allowing him to leave at certain times each night. It would take two hours to get Nicholson in the full Joker attire, makeup and prosthetics on, wig placement and touch-ups. Despite Nicholson's demands, he was very popular with the makeup team and acquiesced to have them make him completely change his very famous face. Nicholson was happy to experiment with different looks in the pre-production stage and due to Nicholson not liking to work on weekends, it gave the makeup team room to breathe and catch up. Nicholson's chalk white face was an acrylic-based makeup called Pax, shaded with gunmetal grey eyeshadow, and his prosthesis was glued on with 355 silicon adhesive because Nicholson was allergic to spirit gum. In the scene where Joker removes the flesh-coloured makeup to reveal a white face underneath, this effect was created by using acrylic-based white paint with a layer of silicon oil over it. The skin-coloured makeup was then layered over the silicon oil, which nothing sticks to, and it could be easily wiped off by Nicholson during the scene. Bob Ringwood's costumes are also integral to Batman, with fake muscles, a huge cowl, and a rather large codpiece, which Burton admits is to sexualise the character slightly, 
more sexualization would come with Batman Returns. Ringwood would turn down the opportunity to work on License to Kill in favour of Batman. The costume designed by Ringwood was Burton's idea to use all black with flashes of yellow. $250,000 was spent on designs, 28 of which were sculpted latex with 25 different capes and six different heads, with famously a cowl that meant Keaton couldn't turn his head. He had to turn his whole body to look left or right. When Market Research Group Marketing Evaluations assessed Batman's box office potential for the summer of 1989, they said it would flop. According to the data, Batman wasn't as popular as someone like the Incredible Hulk. And while Batman's marketing potential almost certainly emulated the previous attempts by Star Wars and Ghostbusters to market products to consumers, those products were almost an afterthought to the movie itself. Batman was designed from the ground up to be merchandise. Scenes were aligned with merchandise potential. It was decreed that the Batmobile couldn't be harmed due to its toy potential and every prop, every weapon, every tool would be carefully moulded in plastic to sell to children. Batman was the first real event of cinema. In March 1989, just three months before the film's release, Warner Brothers announced it was merging with Time Inc. to create the mega conglomerate Time Warner, allowing them to capitalise on more brains to help Batman become the event of the summer of 1989. While there was controversy surrounding the movie's casting and look, in the background, 300 licensees were contracted to make over 100 products that were listed in a glossy brochure. You could choose a Batman rhinestone jacket, a Batman watch, Batman cycling shorts, Batman tops, a model Batwing, Batman action figures, or a satin jacket modelled by Batman co-creator Bob Kane. And unlike movies of today, all fans had, by way of a poster teaser, was the yellow Batman logo, a textless teaser which only had the June 23rd opening date printed on it. 12,000 of these posters were stolen from bus stops and subways, which gave the creative team valuable input on how popular and effective their marketing strategy was. The Batman logo itself became omnipresent. It showed up on clothing, trading cards, even shorn into people's hair. Retail stores started to hire security staff to handle crowds desperate for Batman paraphernalia. By the time Batman actually debuted in cinemas, the explosion of merchandise desire became an avalanche. Even stores who didn't sell licensed goods started selling Batman merch. Batman was a license for Warner Brothers to print money, and they raked in $500 million from legitimate products. But, as with most things, counterfeits were rife, and US Marshals would conduct raids and seize over 40,000 fake Batman t-shirts and toys. The merchandising operations were even more strategic for Batman Returns, but that's reserved for a future episode, possibly for sequel Timber. You heard it here first. Executive producers Benjamin Melnicka and Michael Yuslin filed a breach of contract lawsuit in a Los Angeles County Superior Court on the 26th of March 1992. They claimed to be the victims of a sinister campaign of fraud and coercion that has cheated them out of continuing involvement in the production of Batman and its sequels. They claimed they were denied proper credits and deprived of any financial rewards for their indispensable creative contribution to the success of Batman. A Superior Court judge rejected this lawsuit. Warner Brothers offered the pair an out-of-court settlement, a song described by Melnicka and Usland's attorney as two popcorns and two cokes. And that was the catalyst for a lot of things in the summer of 1989, apart from the birth of my sister, because my sister was born in June 1989. Batman was not responsible for that, but Batman was responsible for the BBFC, introducing a 12 certificate to cinema releases for the first time 
to sit in between PG and 15 ratings. And this is partly in response to the US's PG-13 rating and partly in response to the fact that Batman was a little bit too graphically violent for a PG, but not graphically violent enough for a 15. And there's a movie coming very soon to this podcast that would receive complaints for getting a 12 rating instead of a PG rating. But, and we're going to be coming to that in a couple of episodes time, a 12 rating made sense for Batman. Someone else who makes sense for Batman, and this episode in particular, as well as every single episode of this podcast, is Keanu Reeves. And so I'm going to segue to the obligatory Keanu reference, which is a part of this podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And I teased it last episode because it, there's a lot of links between Batman and Superman, but Keanu Reeves is also going to be starring in DC League of Super Pets as Batman. Keanu is going to be Batman. I mean, is this not the pinnacle of his career to be known as Batman? He's not obviously going to dress up as Batman, which is very disappointing for me, but to be the voice of Batman, I think Keanu's done it all now. There is nothing else that he needs to do apart from John Wick 4. So I've already mentioned the inclusion of Prince on this soundtrack. But really, when we talk about the music of Batman, there's another person that we need to talk about because Tim Burton had worked with Danny Elfman on Pee-wee's Big Adventure and on Beetlejuice as well. And they'd obviously go on to collaborate together again and again in the future. Elfman would work on this score for Batman. And this was, at the time, the biggest project that he'd ever worked on. Prince was used as inspiration for the score. And so John Peters and Peter Goober contacted Prince to ask him, would you write the soundtrack for Batman? For the first and last time, Prince declared himself willing to take outside direction and collaborated on the music for Batman. The soundtrack for Batman would become the 11th studio album by Prince, originally intended as a collaboration between Prince and Michael Jackson. Prince had to agree to sign the publishing rights to the songs used in the film over to Warner Brothers so they couldn't be used in any compilation albums or best ofs. And even in an album released in 2016, only Bat Dance was included. Prince would, however, perform Batman tracks at live concerts. And even despite Prince's iconic Batman album, Tim Burton would have preferred to have not had Prince record the soundtrack. And this was reportedly because Burton was a huge fan of Prince. So much so, he thought Prince was too good, quite literally, for his movie. But like with everything, with this particular Batman movie, the Prince soundtrack became iconic, especially Batdance. So I mentioned the iconic Batman logo poster, which was black, with just the Batman logo and just the date. The date said 23 June. And when Batman was released, after being previewed a few days before, it was released wide on that date, the 23rd of June, 1989. It was the same week as Honeyo Shrunk the Kids, which Batman kept off the top of the box office. Batman earned $68 million in its first week in the US. It would be dethroned from the number one spot in its third week by Lethal Weapon 2. And there really is no sugarcoating it. Batman was huge. It would gross $251.2 million domestically in the US, $160.2 million internationally, making $411.4 million in total worldwide. It became the fastest film to earn $100 million. That was in 11 days. It was the highest grossing comic book movie based on a DC comic book until 2008's The Dark Knight and became the highest grossing movie of 1989 in the US, just like Superman did in 1978. And another case of Hollywood accounting, Warner Brothers claimed Batman ended up losing $35.8 million 
and, quote-unquote, is not likely to ever make a profit. Hollywood accounting is basically where the books studios are fiddled somewhat to show profit where there isn't any and loss where there isn't any to account for other losses. It's basically complete poppycock. And despite all the negative fan reactions, fans really love this movie and they saw it in droves. And while it's not as critically well-received as Superman, it's still seen as one of the best Batman movies. And as I'm going to come to, there are a lot of Batman movies. When it came to awards season, Anton First and Peter Young won the Academy Award for Best Art Direction, while Jack Nicholson was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor, Musical Comedy. Batman would get six BAFTA nominations for production design, visual effects, costume design, makeup, sound and actor in a supporting role for Nicholson, but it would not win any BAFTAs. And as I've just alluded to, like Superman, Batman had three sequels. Batman Returns in 1992, which reunited Burton and Keaton. Batman Forever in 1995, which replaced Burton with Joel Schumacher and Keaton with Val Kilmer. And Batman and Robin in 1997, which retained Joel Schumacher, but replaced Kilmer with George Clooney. The planned fifth Batman movie, Batman Unchained, was cancelled in the wake of the poor response to Batman and Robin. In 2005, Batman was rebooted in the critically and financially successful Dark Knight trilogy, helmed by Christopher Nolan. They are, of course, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight would also win two Academy Awards, including a posthumous Best Supporting Actor Oscar for the late Heath Ledger. In 2016, Batman was rebooted again for the DCEU, with Ben Affleck taking the mantle in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, a cameo in Suicide Squad, and again in Justice League and Zack Snyder's Justice League. Affleck is due to be Batman one last time in the 2022 film The Flash, alongside Michael Keaton, who's reprising his timeline's version of Bruce Wayne, with Affleck as The Flash's version of Bruce Wayne. Robert Pattinson also stars as Batman, Matt Reeves' 2022 The Batman, not to be confused with any of the other Batmans, because this is another, another universe version of Bruce Wayne. This is not confusing at all, honest. Will Arnett provided the voice of Batman for the Lego movie, which is episode 31 of this podcast, as well as its sequel and also Lego Batman's own movie, the Lego Batman movie. Jimmy Kimmel voices the character in Teen Titans Go to the Movies. And as I said, the forthcoming DC League of Super Pets. We all know who's going to be the best Batman as far as I'm concerned from then on. Michael Keaton is due to reprise the role of Batman as well in the movie Batgirl, which stars Leslie Grace as Barbara Gordon. There's also Batman the Animated Series, countless animated movies, including Batman Mask of the Phantasm and Batman the Killing Joke, both with Batman voiced by Kevin Conroy. Conroy also voiced Batman for the popular and critically acclaimed Arkham series of video games. There's a ton of Batman video games too, so basically no one is lacking for Batman representation in any and all forms of media because Batman is literally everywhere and it all started with this movie. How crazy is that? Let's move into some social media thoughts. So I like to ask patrons and on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook what they think of the movies that I feature. And I'm going to start with the patrons and I'm going to start with someone who could be Batman. It's perennial commenter Andy and he says, I remember how big Batman was when it came out. The posters, the back dance video, the t-shirts were everywhere. As for the movie itself, I found that my position on it has shifted over the past few decades. While I still really enjoy the movie, it becomes very apparent in the storytelling that there were far too many cooks in the kitchen, as the tone shifts from scene to scene. 
Further evidence of this comes from a behind-the-scenes story where Michael Keaton was told to go up the Gotham Cathedral steps. When he asked what was going to happen next, he was told they'd figure it out once they got there. Another lingering issue with this movie is that Jack Nicholson is incapable of really disappearing into the character of the Joker. While his performances are bad, I feel like it's really just Jack being Jack with white face paint and facial prosthetics. The real gem of this movie, though, is Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne and Batman. Truly an immersive experience and any and all concerns about how a skinny comic actor would become the Cape Crusader are remedied in that fantastic, albeit too big for his head, costume. And while we can't be sure if Andy is Batman or if he isn't Batman, what we can be sure about is that his podcast Geek Salad is absolutely a podcast that you should be listening to because movies like Batman are exactly the things that they like to talk about on Geek Salad because they like to talk about everything geeky. So movies, music, TV shows, games, literally everything. I guarantee you they've got multiple episodes on Batman. So you should absolutely listen to Geek Salad. I'll put some information in the show notes and maybe we'll find out if he is Batman at some point. And the final patron comment is from Claudia who says, Gotham's architecture is exactly the way I always pictured it to be. A complete opposite of the squeaky clean metropolis. Also real of the music as it's perfectly foreboding and gloomy. I was thrilled to see such a fun adaptation of Batman and I feel most of the cast was spot on. Thanks for your comments, sis. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at Mr Asquith who said, Watched it again last week. So much good stuff in this movie and representative of Batman in the comics both at the time and then for the next few years following. They even changed his comic suit to match the movie. Any bad things? Maybe the lack of martial arts quality. At D.W. Lundberg said, Rightfully revered for its aesthetics and its influence on 80s, 90s superhero cinema. But the characters and even entire sequences feel curiously underwritten to the point where you only empathise with the people on screen if you're 100% aware of Batman's comic book history. At Bergfan004 said, Some of the most incredible and beautiful set designs ever. At Stungoat75 said, Still my favourite cinematic Batman film and the score by Danny Elfman is just a masterpiece that I still listen to this day. At Harry Med Movies said, Did anyone not own a pirate copy of this as a child? Great film and set up the world beautifully and honestly changed comic book movies just with its unique casting of Batman showing the key is to get the right actor and not just a big name. When we reviewed this recently, we absolutely loved it. Can't wait to show Harry Batman Returns, which is my favourite Batman movie. Burton and Batman are an ideal gothic Gotham match. At films underscore that said, Nice apartment, lots of space. At Andy Williams 250 said, It's mad to think that when it was first released, the reaction was, wow, this is dark. When you consider where we are now, it's a truly groundbreaking film, which is strange considering Tim Burton has never read a comic. A very fun and enjoyable film. At Swayze of Arabia said, I like Tim Burton's approach to the Caped Crusader. I love the look of the film, from the set design to the moody look of the film. He did a great job of capturing the grittiness of Gotham City. Plus, who can forget the score from Prince? At American underscore Murder said, Love this film. Great cast and what a great soundtrack it was. Love Prince. At Smash Trivia John said, I'll always have fond memories of this. I watched it a lot as a kid because we owned the VHS. I love Jack Nicholson's Joker as that's the over-the-top, ridiculous, hilarious Joker I want. It saddens me that since then they've just kept going darker and more serious with the character. Also, I love how hilarious it is that it starts with two Looney Tunes characters berating you for not having popcorn and other concessions while watching it. I don't know if that's on all versions of the film, 
but I remember it being on our VHS. It's definitely not on the version that's currently on streaming, I can tell you that. At Real Bruzy Twos said, Has been my, parentheses Johnny, favourite movie since I was three. The style of this movie is unmatched. And the final Twitter comment comes from at Nicola's Kitchen. There's actually going to be a little ad at the end of this episode from Nick all about Livestream for the Cure. And I'm going to be joining in on Livestream for the Cure as well on Saturday, the 21st of May. It's at 5pm UK time. Make sure you join in as basically it's going to be the Kian Hour. How awesome is that? You want to join in for the Kian Hour. It's going to be one whole hour of obligatory Keanu references. And I just wanted to get that in before I read Nick's comment because it's a brilliant charity. Make sure you listen to that little ad that's at the end of this episode and make sure you join us on Saturday the 21st of May at 5pm UK time. Anyway, Pat Nicola's Kitchen said, The movie that made me love movies. I used to hold a boombox up to the TV just to record that Elfman score on cassette tape. Also includes the greatest character in the history of cinema, full stop. Probably quote it second only to The Simpsons. It's a 1,000 out of 10. And guys, this is the man who doesn't like Avengers Endgame. So if he likes something 1,000 out of 10, you know it's got to be pretty decent. Moving over to Instagram. Just the one comment on Instagram this time from at sassylassie76 who said, When this film was announced, I was very excited to see what Tim Burton would do with it. But I was also a bit surprised by the announcement that Michael Keaton would be Bruce Wayne and Batman. My thought was, really? Mr. Mom? Beetlejuice, that Michael Keaton. But after seeing him, I fell in love with him as the bat. Michael Keaton remains my favourite Batman. And more comments on Facebook. This is a miracle. Second episode in a row. Now, two comments on Facebook. So, the first comment is from Andy, who said, Wasn't too keen on it at the time, and it hasn't grown on me over the intervening years. The Vicky Vale stuff was bloody awful. Alfred giving away Bat's identity was ridiculous. Prince's bloody awful party man musical interlude was like something out of the Adam West Batman. It was more like an adaptation of the TV series than the comics. Its only saving grace was Nicholson's Jack Napier, which was hammy and then threatening at the drop of a hat. I think Burton had no respect for the character or wealth of history the Bat has, and he got lucky with the success of this one. His luck had run out by the time he got around to doing exactly the same thing to Planet of the Apes. And the final comment goes to Tony, who said, Excellent film, iconic soundtrack and imagery. Though there were a few scenes that made it into the final film that should have ended up on the cutting room floor. And obviously, as always, a huge thank you for all the amazing comments for Batman. I did suspect that I might get a few more extra comments for Batman than I normally get, but really excellent comments, a wealth of different opinions on Batman. And like last episode, when I put a poll up on Twitter about favourite Superman, I did a favourite big screen Batman poll on Twitter. Now, I did it on a different day to the time I did it before. It wasn't as popular. Superman got like 200 plus votes. There were 137 votes on this poll on Twitter. And I basically asked, who's your favourite big screen Batman and why? And I gave the options of Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Ben Affleck and other, with others hopefully posting in the comments. Uh, Michael Keaton won with 48.2% of the vote, followed by Christian Bale with 28.5%. Ben Affleck and other both got 11.7%. And in the other category, there was a lot of love actually for Val Kilmer. In other, there was a little bit of love for Robert Pattinson in the comments. 
But there was also a lot of love for Kevin Conroy as well, who obviously voiced the animated version of Batman I mentioned in the episode just now. So thank you if you took part in that poll and if you commented on that poll. As I said before, there were plenty of brilliant comments on that post, but because I didn't say I was going to use it in the episode, I'm not going to use them. But there were some fantastic comments about big screen Batman. And to be honest, a lot of people just love Batman full stop. So I think it's a case of they really don't care who's playing Batman as long as it's Batman. But I always love listener interaction on this podcast. It just fills my heart full of joy that so many people wanted to get involved with this episode. So huge thank you to everyone who took part in the poll and mega huge thank you to everyone who provided comments for Batman. Batman was the biggest movie of 1989 in the US. Not worldwide though, because that fell to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But not only was Batman a huge movie, it was a cultural phenomenon. You know when a movie becomes a breakfast cereal that it's truly made it in life. And Batman was the first to truly take advantage of consumer demand for merchandise. Not only did it have that, it also had the power of Prince at the peak of his career. Batman went from a comic book to an entire brand. And it couldn't have done that without the actual bread and butter of Batman actually being a good movie. Is it perfect? No. Batman returns it. But in having the courage to step out of the shadows of 1966's Batman, as well as embrace and reject what made Superman great, Batman became the go-to template for not only superhero movies, but all blockbusters. Batman was totally aware of what it was, and it took the controversy and negativity and turned it into a behemoth of blockbuster packaging, embracing the origins of Batman and accepting that even the most diehard fans will like something if they can wear the t-shirt like all their mates are. Considering executives were not convinced the big screen Batman would work, it's worked pretty well. Batman is everywhere. And really, it's just a story about a deeply troubled man who puts on a costume in his spare time. And really, aren't we all doing that? Don't we all put on happy faces when we're sad? I know I do. And in a Hollywood of name names, getting Jack Nicholson was a huge coup for this movie, which undoubtedly wouldn't have worked without his star power. He would become the pinnacle for Joker, so much so that doubt was cast on Heath Ledger being able to live up to it. He did, of course, because it's Heath Ledger. I've not seen the 2019 Joker movie, so I have no idea what Joaquin Phoenix brought to the table for the role, and so I can't comment on that. But Nicholson is charismatic and psychotic and charming and deranged and the complete antithesis to Batman. And yet Batman and Joker complement each other perfectly. They're both crazy in their own ways. And both of them wear masks. Michael Keaton went from nobody's Batman to everybody's Batman. So much so, he's still playing the character today. And add to this the glorious production design of Anton First, and the tangibility of his rendition of Gotham City, and the darkness that creeps into every crevice of every frame. It heralded a time when comic book movies could be gritty and dark, and still be comic book movies. Batman would go on to become a pastiche, then become dark and gritty again, before becoming a bit more safe and clean. But this Batman never loses its sense of humour. It taught us to never rub another man's rhubarb, after all. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Batman. Now, I do this podcast for me, but I also do it for everyone listening. And what I really love is I love when people get involved with this podcast, because not only do you get involved in episodes and you get credited for that involvement, you can also help this podcast grow. So if you do enjoy this podcast, and you want to have comments read out in episodes, then all you need to do is I put thoughts posts up on the weekend, usually on a Saturday. I usually retweet them on a Sunday. 
on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is leave your comment on the movie and I will read it out. And I will also credit you in the show notes and in the episode as well. Now, this podcast is free and it always will be free. And you can support it without paying a single penny to do so. You can be like Vicky Vale and leave a rating or review. I don't know if Vicky Vale would leave ratings or reviews, but she's writing an article on Batman. So write an article on Verbal Diorama. Wherever you found this podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, wherever, if you could leave a rating or review, that would be awesome. You could also retweet and like post on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and also on Letterboxd as well, if you were on Letterboxd. But the easiest thing you can do is if you have a friend or family member who loves Batman, hopefully they will find something in this episode that intrigues them or excites them, or they just like listening to my voice. Who knows? There must be someone out there that does. So if you have a friend or family member who's a big Batman fan, then direct them to this episode, direct them to this podcast. That would be amazing. And if you like this episode on Batman, you might also like the following episodes and the movies associated with them. I'm going to recommend episode 26, Constantine, because arguably without Batman, I don't think we'd have the adaptation of Constantine that we have because it's a bit of a dark, gritty adaptation of Constantine. It's nothing like its source material, but it's a Keanu Reeves movie and it's got Rachel Voice in it. And therefore those two people's involvement should be enough to get your appetite whetted for Constantine. It's a really fun movie. Please give it a chance. Episode 70, Birds of Prey, because apart from Superman, it's the only other DC movie that I've covered. And obviously you've got the Batman, Joker, Harley Quinn, Link, and Birds of Prey is a super fun movie that I definitely don't think got the recognition that it deserved. So please check out that movie and please check out that episode. Episode 148, The Crow, because like Constantine, The Crow takes so much from Batman. It's very dark, very gritty. It's all about revenge. And, you know, there is a tragic real-life story behind The Crow as well that I think most people do know, but I wanted to go into that in detail in the episode and really make it a tribute to Brandon Lee, who was phenomenal in that movie. So check out The Crow, the movie, if you've not seen it, and episode 148. And episode 152, last episode of Superman, because, as I said, there's a lot of parallels between Superman and Batman, so... If you like Batman, you'll probably also like Superman as well. But as always, give me feedback. Let me know what you think of my recommendations. Next episode, continuing Heroes Through the Decade. So we've been to the 60s, we've been to the 70s, we've been to the 80s. Now we're going to the 90s. And another hero who likes to wear a lot of black leather. But someone who I would argue is a lot more superpowered and a lot more of a badass. Because 1998's Blade was not only the rare 18 rated superhero movie. I believe it was R rated in the US, but anyway. It also came out at a time when superhero movies were reserved for a family friendly audience, a bit like Batman. So when Blade came along, it was something so wildly different, not including the fact it was headlined by an African American superhero. There have been other black superhero movies, but arguably the most important is Blade. And so, we're going to go to 1998 and we're going to go to Blade. And I'm really looking forward to actually watch Blade again because it's been a while since I've seen it because I'll be honest, I much prefer Blade 2. But to get to Blade 2, I need to start with Blade. So bit of a, another bit of a spoiler there, but I really want to do Blade 2. So I'm not going to do Blade in the run-up to Blade 2. By the way, Blade 2 is not going to be in Heroes of the Decades at all. 
but I do want to do Blade 2 at some point. So I'm going to start with Blade. So please join me next week for Blade. As I mentioned, this podcast is free and always will be free, but there are some wonderful people who support this podcast financially and I could not do what I do without their support. I could not use the software that I use, the equipment that I use. All of that has been funded by these amazing people. So a huge thank you to Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Sunny, and brand new patron, Drew. Drew is one of the hosts of Sequel Pitch. It is a podcast that I love and I have been on twice. Um, and I'm so grateful he's become a Duke Kaboom patron. So I now dub him Druke Kaboom. Huge thank you, Druke Kaboom. Thank you to all of the patrons, all of whom I have it on record, have danced with the devil in the pale moonlight. If you want to check out my merch, verbaldiorama.com slash merch. If you want to email me, you can do so by emailing verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can say hi, you can give me feedback, or you can go to verbaldiorama.com and you can fill out the contact form. and. I also write stuff for film stories. So if you go over to filmstories.co.uk, you can check out the magazine that I write for. You can buy copies of the magazine and you can read the articles that I write online as well. I do a couple of them every week. And finally, don't you just love prints? What does hope mean to you? 
Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I am the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, a charity live stream event to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute, which researches immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. Their mission, one that I believe in very, very strongly, is a future immune to cancer. And this year for the sixth annual live stream for The Cure, I want to emphasize more than anything, hope. Over the past five years, myself and amazing creators and partners from around the world have raised over $50,000 for this amazing cause. And this year, we're looking to add another $20,000 to that total. Please join me May 19th, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern for 45 hours of content over the next three days, as I'm once again joined by amazing creators from around the world to help fight for hope. Learn more or make an early donation today at livestreamforthecure.com.